Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us once again. And I'm a bit hungover this morning, Bethan. Oh. I thought I'd save that as a little surprise once we'd hit record. Oh, dear. You haven't, you haven't recorded hungover in ages, have you? No, at least a week, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I was I literally was hungover last Sunday when we recorded. Right. Oh, I think you we hit it well. Yeah. I mean, I was I know. awful last Sunday because I had that really awful cough and I kept on not being able oh to say God. any words. So, you know, you did better than I did. Last week's episode, just for um, the out of interest for our listeners, if they find it interesting, I think I ended up editing about 15 minutes of Bethan's mistakes out of it. Which is actually quite a lot. So a I think lot, I made about a thousand edits to it. Oh my it, yeah. God. Honestly, I'm so sorry because it was just horrific. I just couldn't say anything. You sounded like Doc Cotton after 80 bags. And <laughs> I bet I did. A can of tenant super, yeah. My cough mess. still hasn't gone either. It's still there a little bit in the background. It's ridiculous. This has been like about 10, 11 weeks now. Fed I do up. feel I want for the you. Summer. It is rubbish. I need some sunshine and some fresh air. The, the the summer is around the corner, so we've mm-hmm. not got long to wait. Good. So, um, on the note of summer, let's thank our most recent Patreon supporters. That's a good yeah, link, isn't it? Yeah, that was such a good segue. Our listeners will totally appreciate that one. Absolutely. Shall I Shall I do a little name check for our most recent? It's all the girls this week. It's a little ladies gang. Yeah. A huge thank you to Stephanie Fielding, Rachel Barnes and Sally Darby. Thank you to each and every one of you and thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. Your support over on Patreon makes a massive difference to us. And if you want to hear kind of more inane ramblings from us, then do head over there. We've got loads and loads of bonus episodes. We have our mini podcast, Crime Wave, which are kind of like half an hour, 40 minute episodes every couple of weeks usually, where we talk about topical true crime stories making the news. Last week's one was uh, really funny. Uh, Well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't because it's brutal stuff, but we're talking about penises a lot, weren't we, Bethan? Yeah, there was a lot lot of different words for the male genitalia. It was not our finest moment. But it was, considering the actual topic, it's nice to be able to have something lighthearted, isn't it? When you're discussing something that horrific, it's quite nice to just revert back to 12-year-old schoolboy and giggle at the word dick. Yeah, or cock. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, if you want to check all of that out, if you're able to support us, we would really appreciate it. All you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Domestic abuse is a serious issue that affects many people in the UK and around the world. It can take many different forms, including physical violence, emotional abuse, sexual violence, financial control, and of course, coercive control too. Now, we've covered multiple cases involving upsetting and often fatal incidences of domestic violence, domestic abuse and coercive control on this show. And the vast majority of these cases are centred around female victims. And of course, that's not really that strange. According to the Office for National Statistics in the UK, most victims of domestic abuse are female. In the year ending March 2021, an estimated 2.3 million adults aged between 16 and 74 experienced domestic abuse in England and Wales. And of those victims, an estimated 1.6 million were female. So that represents 69% of all domestic violence victims in the whole of the UK. Yeah, I remember we talked about this quite recently as well. Didn't yeah. we? And it, is, um, it is easy to kind of assume it's a, a female only crime like a crime only against females because those statistics are so much higher 
And there's lots of reasons why, but it, it definitely isn't just a crime that affects women. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's much more commonplace male victims of domestic violence. It's more common than, than I think we often realise. And the majority of men who experience domestic abuse don't report it to the police, so the figures aren't even that accurate. Only 18.5% of men who experience partner abuse, for example, report it to the police, and that compares to nearly double uh, for women. So um, it is interesting, and I think the figures, yeah, don't tell the, the whole picture. And it is good because it shows that women who historically were more likely to be a victim of domestic abuse and violence are now more able to come forward and say something. And obviously, we've we've touched on previously, and we always talk about the fact that certain things weren't even crimes. Like you could rape your wife, and that wasn't that wasn't rape. That was you were having sex with your wife, as was your right. And there's certain things that have changed in the law and domestic, you know, coercive control only really came in as a as a crime very recently. All of this sort of thing. So it's it's great that actually that many women feel that they can. But that's still very, very low. And then for men as well, like that's very low. 30% of women who suffer partner abuse actually report it to the police. And then 18.5% of men, that is that is just heartbreakingly low, isn't it, really? It is really shocking. Less than one in five will actually come forward and report it. So its prevalence is it's quite shocking. But also I think the figure for women is is shocking. Only a third of women mm. or less slightly less than a third will report it. Understandably, because it's it's so complex. And and there's another interesting fact which we touched on when we did a recent episode on male uh, victims in domestic abuse, which I think was season eight, episode twenty that mm-hmm. you did, Bethan. Mm-hmm. And it was that um men who identify as gay or bisexual are more likely to experience domestic abuse than heterosexual men. And I think I can't remember if it was in that episode that I talked about an instance when I was out with some guys, uh, two guys that were together, and they were they, they basically got into a domestically abusive situation right before my very eyes. And mm. one guy slapped his partner in the face in a pub in front of everybody, and it was like a really hard slap. And you could just tell this wasn't the first time that had happened, mm. and it was just so shocking. It was just horrific to witness. And I thought, yeah, I can kind of, um, I'm not surprised about that statistic for gay and bisexual men. It's just horrible, isn't it? And I know we talked about this in the previous episode, so I won't go into loads, but trying to do any research is very difficult because there's still, for those people in those relationships, there's still sometimes a stigma around the fact that they're even in a gay or bisexual relationship. And then, then also to have this thing which is a stigma which is abuse as well it's so hard to get any real tangible facts isn't it yeah and i'm not going to jump on the whole the police are shit bandwagon but i i suppose sort of there is still murmurings in the press of institutional homophobia in the police force for example so i think maybe if you're a gay man and you're the victim of domestic abuse you might kind of be thinking well are the police going to be supportive are they going to judge me even if the police aren't homophobic you may still have those worries as a gay man so yeah i think i think even if they're not which we don't know for sure but it's definitely discussed in the press you're going to be thinking back to 10 15 20 years ago same as yeah, if you're yeah, a person of colour yeah. and the police are, are not someone that you fully trust because you've still got 
those very recent memories of other people yeah. of color who haven't been treated properly. So, yeah, it's a really, really tough sub- sub- uh, subject, isn't it? It is. It really is. So today we're going to discuss a brutally cruel and painfully recent case of male domestic abuse. And it's a particularly shocking story, one which spans two decades and one which left the victim emotionally, financially and physically broken. And such was the severity of the violence inflicted against this man that one senior judge of more than 22 years experience called the case the worst example of coercive control she had ever seen. Richard and Cherie Spencer first met in the year 2000 through mutual friends and they were both 30-somethings living and working in London then. They dated for three years and eventually got married before going on to have three children together. The young family eventually moved to Bubworth, a quaint and quiet village in the East Riding area of Yorkshire. Cherie Spencer worked at the highest levels for Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service, HMPPS, as a senior project manager in the department's Directorate of Strategy and Performance. She often bragged to friends that she had the ear of the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. One of Cherie's friends later commented to the press. Cherie would often brag about being only two levels down from the Prime Minister in her field and said she had regular meetings with Johnson at Number 10 Downing Street. She spoke of him as if he was a friend. And I know we don't get political on this show and I'm not going to say much more than, is that really something to brag about? But I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> Definitely not, no. That fucking Muppet, yeah. Oh um, yeah. I mean, I kind of get it because it's the sort of thing I'd do, Bethan, but I can be a fucking I mean, Muppet. So. It, is, it is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. That is pretty massive, but also it is also Boris Johnson. Yeah. Hmm. Somewhat ironically, one of Cherie's main focuses within her role was investigating and analysing the economical and psychological effects that custodial sentences had upon the families of the offenders. The details of her relationship with the former Prime Minister are unclear. However, it was confirmed that her position within the HMPPS and the nature of her work was highly respected and she was treated with authority and high regard. She really was a leading figure in this field. Therefore, she did have regular contact with several high-ranking politicians who were involved at the highest levels of the UK criminal justice system. Most of Cherie's colleagues described her as a polite, pleasant, dedicated and professional civil servant who always went above and beyond. She really was seen as this absolute professional. However, as her career progressed and she became more and more influential, those close to her noticed that she quickly developed an ego and her whole personality seemed to be full of arrogance and she became shrouded in an overinflated sense of self-importance. Notwithstanding this, nobody gave Cherie or her personality much thought. Overall, she seemed like a decent person, a dedicated wife and loving mother, as well as an ambitious and capable government sector worker. However, as is always the case on this show, behind closed doors, this was far from the case. Cherie Spencer was living a life of hypocrisy, cruelty, extreme violence and abuse. It is always the way, isn't it? Behind closed doors, you just don't know what's going on, but it's always a shock that somebody can work in a profession like this, that they can have a job like this, that they can be so respected at work and have worked their way up and then this is all happening behind the scenes. It's even though it happens all the time, it's still a shock, isn't it? It's always a shock. Do you remember the 
I think it was our most recent bonus episode for Patreon. We covered the death of Amy Spencer, who was a, I think she was a cam girl, wasn't she? Mm, and a, yeah. She'd been in porn films and done all sorts, and she was a bit of an influencer. And she'd been at the flat of that Brighton couple over a weekend, and they'd been taking drugs. And one of that party that we think was at that flat that weekend taking drugs is the head of radiography at a, at a hospital now, mm. had a yeah. really respected job and just kind of got up on the Monday morning, went to work and left that flat and there was coke all over the place and her boyfriend, you know, going out of his mind on drugs and so was Amy and ultimately she fell out of a window. But I just couldn't get my head around and, it, you know, we spoke about it at length, didn't we, Bethan? Because mm. you said you've known people in the past that lead those kind of chaotic lives, but professionally they present as something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. It's so weird. Cherie was an alcoholic with a violent streak a mile wide. Her excessive alcohol consumption was her own way of self-medicating against her inner demons, as well as dealing with the general struggles that came with her day-to-day existence. Her frustrations in life, the stresses and strains of being in such an important and high-pressure role, would erupt into violent behaviour, exacerbated by her drinking, and her rage was directed at one person, her husband Richard. From the outside looking in, the Spencer family were happy, close-knit and dedicated to one another. Their inner circle of close friends and family members would later describe how Richard and Cherie were an ideal couple who seemed very much in love. In public, they were smiley, chatty and openly affectionate. And I don't want to sort of labour the point, but, you know, what you were saying just, Bethan, this is always the way. And I think now we have social media, people present a version of themselves on social media and we see this highly glossed version of their lives. And Cherie was no different. A lot of the photos she put on social media that were out there and subsequently released into the media you know, she is living her best life, having her lips done, you know, looks really glamorous. You wouldn't think that she's an alcoholic. You wouldn't think that she's privately humiliating her husband and and beating him up regularly. So it just makes it all the more shocking. And I do think that there can be, there's a lot said about social media and how people only put the good things. But when you look back at our family photo albums from the 90s, for example, or the 80s, you don't take photographs of the not happy moments and you only put photographs in albums of the happy things so I don't think it's necessarily like a bad thing that people only share the good on their Facebook and but it it can really make other people just assume that that is everything that's 100% of the time and nobody's life is 100% happy all the time people have got things going on um but yeah I do always find it really fascinating that you do easily see that person as just what they post I think of you, Mark, and I think of you as only ever on holiday. Don't think you've even got a job. yeah. You don't see me on a hungover (laughs) Sunday, do you? Um, Looking a mess and the house is... Not for a while anyway. state, Bethan. (laughs) I bet it is. I've heard (laughs) rumours. The rumours are definitely true. Um, I'll release a statement to the press later confirming that. Yeah, good. But yeah, you're right. I always say that about social media. It's no different to when we used to take normal photos. You wouldn't document the kind of rubbish stuff. So yeah, I completely agree with what you say. But I think the difference now is you've got hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands, that can see those photo albums Mm -hmm. and they are affected by them. So um, yeah, an interesting aside. The issues within Richard's relationship with Cherie had begun merely months after the pair had first started dating. 
Richard soon realised that Cherie was prone to sudden and explosive fits of rage that seemed to come out of nowhere and last for several hours. These rages would happen regardless of the environment they were in or the circumstances, and Cherie's heavy alcohol use seemed to make her outbursts more severe, but Richard would later comment that she could often become just as volatile when sober, which I think is is all the more worrying, really. Yeah, definitely. Cherie had always had a drinking problem, and it wasn't uncommon for her to consume more than three bottles of white wine per night, which is a hell of a lot, isn't a it? I mean, night. that's oh my God. 30 units of alcohol. Um, oh, that's nearly a, a that litre is a, of That vodka. is a lot of alcohol. And it was kind of night after night after night. So yeah, it was you know, a huge amount to be drinking. She clearly was an alcoholic. Over time, Cherie's heavy alcohol use fueled her violent nature, and things began to escalate. Of course, it wasn't long before Cherie's mostly verbal rage turned physical, and she soon began punching, kicking, biting and slapping Richard for any reason she could think of. Eventually, she no longer bothered even trying to find a reason. She'd just go after Richard randomly and without mercy, beating and screaming at him incoherently until she tired herself out like a toddler and passed out in a drunken stupor. Not like a toddler, but I just had this kind of image yeah. of, you know, how a, a, a young toddler has a fit of rage and a temper tantrum and becomes so exhausted by it that yeah. they just basically fall asleep and that's when they stop. It's kind of no different here, is it? It is because it's so similar that my two little ones, when they just can't grasp that they can't do something or they're so angry with you that you're not letting them do something... And there's just no, there's no talking to them. There's no calming them down. You just have to wait for them to basically tire themselves out from getting upset. You just have to be there. You have to be present and be ready to give them a hug when they want one or to touch them when they want you to touch them. Because otherwise, if you touch them on the shoulder, they'll go mental. And it's, yeah. and it is like, it is that thing of just like that child overwhelmed. They cannot do anything else. They have no other way of coping right now. And it's understandable for a child. They've got a lot going on. They're trying to do with a lot. They're trying to become a little person. They've got no other no other way of letting this all out. They can't stomp out of the house and go for a drive to calm down, you know, like, like anybody else. But for Cherie, this is just horrific because she's a, a she's not a toddler. There's no there's no excuses here. This is just her being a horrendous person. But she's a grown ass adult. So you can't just yeah ignore that you can't just let her lay on the floor and kick and scream and just move things out of the way so she doesn't hurt herself she's hitting and kicking you like what the hell yeah and she's you know this is an intelligent woman and this she can't find another way to express her emotions or channel it in a different way that's not violent so yeah it's very interesting that that's how she reacts and like I say she's a professional she's intelligent a grown-ass yeah. woman like you said Bethan and and she's Can behaving you imagine if someone said like to her at work that she couldn't do something and she started doing this she'd lose her job immediately yeah, 100% Despite being significantly bigger and stronger than Cherie, Richard never fought back. He could have easily overpowered her. He could have conceivably caused her serious physical harm had he chosen to, but he didn't. On a few occasions, he did try to gently restrain her and deflect her blows, but this only fueled Cherie's rage even further. And we definitely see this time and again when the male is the victim in a domestically abusive relationship. 
quite often this not fighting back, even though Richard could have overpowered Cherie, and maybe that would have been enough to bring her to her senses and to stop her if he'd hit her back. And I'm not saying that's the right thing, but no, maybe that but would have equally, had a different... that's why he couldn't, because the second he did, it would be, well, you hit her. And that would be that. Yeah. He'd be the one being done for abuse. And he's clearly not a horrible person. He's not the sort of person who would hit anybody. No, no. Oh and my she's gosh, so manipulative. Yeah. She's so manipulative that she would have turned the tables and she'd have gone to the police with a black eye and said, he's done this. And they would have seen a wound on his fist, you know, so they would have known. So, yeah, she would have twisted that. And he might have known that deep down. The abuse that Richard endured was not just physical. It was verbal, emotional and coercive too. When Cherie was in the midst of one of her tantrums, which is exactly what they were, she would cruelly insult and belittle Richard. And I am going to use the the word, so just a warning of language. She called him derogatory and degrading names like cunt, fat boy, tiny cock and moron. It's just so degrading to him, bless him. It's horrific. Whenever Richard challenged her on her behaviour, she callously warned him that if he ever told anyone, she would ensure that he never saw his children again. Again, something we see quite often. And she would gleefully brag of how easy it would be for her to accuse him of domestic abuse, as we said. And to prove her point, she once opened the window and screamed, Richard, you're hurting me, before closing it again, sneering and bragging about how smart she was and telling him that he could never win. So, you know, he was so so downtrodden. What an absolute manipulative bitch. Feeling powerless and dejected, Richard always backed down and on it went for years and years and years, 20 years, he endured. The stress of having to live with such a horrible human being caused Richard's mental health to nosedive and he soon found himself medicated for severe anxiety and depression. He suffered several more traumatic incidents, including one which involved Cherie hitting him over the head with a wine glass, causing a deep wound which required stitches. At the hospital, under threat of expulsion from the family, Richard pretended to be Cherie's brother and lied about how he'd gotten his injury to avoid any awkward questions. Another savage incident saw Cherie spit at her husband and grab him by the throat, causing him breathing difficulties. And she would also smash and destroy Richard's personal property, including laptops, phones, clothes and household items. In one incident, she damaged a tyre on his car using a kitchen knife and she then lunged at him with that same knife, leaving a two centimetre cut below his knee. This is just a woman who is just so out of control. Oh yeah, that is the way to describe this. Horrendous. Yeah, and it, it, it would have ended in the worst possible way had events not taken the turn that they take which we'll come on to shortly but with with what I've just talked about I just have this scene of of Cherie in this drunken rage or sober rage it could have been grabbing a massive fucking knife from the kitchen running out the house puncturing Richard's tyre and then him thinking what the hell are you doing and then her kind of lunging at him with the knife and him managing to kind of deflect that blow and he is lucky to escape with just a a two centimeter wound to the below his knee i just i can see her running out the house with that knife she's just crazy more than once richard resorted to borrowing sheree's makeup in order to conceal black eyes and facial bruises to avoid unwanted attention from his work colleagues and other parents when he was taking the children to school this type of behavior would occur regularly and usually happened when sheree was drinking which was most nights 
Each violent outburst would usually end with Cherie apologising, telling Richard she loved him and that she was sorry, and often promising to quit drinking to get help and change her ways. And this is a classic pattern of behaviour that is extremely common in domestic abuse cases. And it's referred to by criminal psychologists as the cycle of abuse. And this is really interesting. The cycle of domestic abuse is characterised by a series of phases that are repeated over time. The cycle typically involves three main stages. Firstly, there is the tension building phase. This is the first stage of the cycle where tension and conflict begin to arise in the relationship. The abuser may become increasingly irritable, critical and unpredictable. The victim may try to appease the abuser or avoid confrontation during this phase. So that like walking on eggshell sort of thing, isn't it? That oh, yeah. not, and, and, you know, and that worrying is... about everything you're going to say or do is wrong. And it's just, yeah, that's that terrifying moment. Like kind of, I don't know whether I'm going to say the wrong thing. What kind of mood are they going to be in today? That that in itself is is a horrific form of abuse. Um, if anyone's ever been the victim of that, it's that unpredictability and not knowing what you're going to come home to or what mood they're going to come home in and how that's going to manifest. So terrible. And I've certainly worked for people actually uh, that have kind of um, been in that phase, I would say, in a an employer-employee relationship, mm, yeah. uh, which you can see similarities, yeah. Um, next comes the explosive phase, and this is the second stage of the cycle where the tension and conflict reach a peak Control over the situation is lost and the abuse occurs. The abuse can take many forms, including physical, emotional, psychological and, of course, sexual abuse. And the victim may feel helpless, fearful or ashamed during this phase. When the abuse subsides, we reach the honeymoon phase. This is the third stage of the cycle, where the abuser may apologise, make promises and show affection towards the victim. The abuser may try to convince the victim that the abuse was an isolated incident, that they will never do it again. The victim may feel relieved or hopeful during this phase and may believe that the relationship can improve. You've probably seen this stage for yourself in others because it's the Mm -hmm. infuriating reason why so many victims tend to stay in their abusive relationships for so long. They are truly hopeful that things can change. Yeah, and And it's easy to see from the outside, but when those people are in there, they they genuinely long for it to get better and that things will go back to how, you know, when it's a good, they sort of see this as the good bit and they're like, this is how good it can be. He won't, they won't do yeah. this again and she won't do that again to me because this is the bit that they want. They want this this loving relationship. And this is a psychological process. So their mind and their brains and how they work are just kind of so fucked up at this point that the abused will genuinely believe that that is the last time it's going to happen and they will take that apology as being sincere and um yeah you know there there is a lot of gaslighting in that phase in particular too so yeah it's it's so difficult to get out of a relationship uh when there is abuse like this Unfortunately, the honeymoon phase is, of course, usually just temporary and the cycle of abuse tends to repeat itself over time. So there might be um, periods of abstinence where there's like nothing going on, but then it will always kind of go into that cycle again from phase one through to phase three, period of time when nothing happens, perhaps back to phase one through to phase three. This was certainly the case for Richard. Cherie's violence and cycles of abuse were left unchecked, and the more she got away with it, the more intense and humiliating her attacks became. 
this is now this is appalling and this is um something we spoke about briefly in a recent episode of crime wave we talked about this case because it's really recent and i knew that i wanted to cover it after that so you'll probably remember this bethan and a lot of our patreon supporters will as well so on one occasion sheree defecated on the floor and forced Richard to clean it up. And on another occasion, she beat him with a wine bottle so hard that it permanently disfigured his ear and it left him with cauliflower ear. Either of those on their own is just horrendous, like any of these individual occasions of violence. But I don't know what it is about she's defecated on the floor and forced him to clean it up. That is so, so degrading and disgusting and dirty and... There's, yeah, there's just something absolutely just revolts you, doesn't it? It just absolutely revolts you that a human being would behave like that to another human being, let alone somebody that they're supposed to love and cherish and be with as a partner. Yeah, it's it's clearly a tactic on her part to show him his place and to degrade him and to say this is your worth, you are worth shit, literally. Cherie's inherent need for violence was rarely satiated unless she had caused Richard a visible injury, and he rarely walked away from an altercation without scratches, bruises or bite marks, not to mention severe emotional trauma. And again, this kind of biting, um, don't often necessarily see that in domestic violence, um, and again, it kind of reminded me of what you would potentially see from a, a two-year-old. Yeah, it's so it's so similar, isn't it, to somebody who literally cannot do anything else because they are learning whereas this woman has had how many years on the earth to learn not to be an absolute prick yeah she's well into her 40s at this point yeah it's almost it's almost a huge level of frustration on her part and that's how it's manifesting itself but that's not an excuse and I don't understand where that frustration was coming from but you know she was self-medicating with alcohol we just don't really know what she was self-medicating but yeah there's there's I'm sure there is more to it that we don't know that wasn't made public over time Richard became hardened to the abuse and immune to the insults and he tried to accept his miserable life for how it was he put up with it for the sake of his children and again I just think as human beings you are able to adapt very quickly so I always think an example is if you were sent to prison it's your liberty is taken away from you you're in this totally alien environment institutionalized it's the complete opposite of how we live our lives right now but actually you will get used to that very quickly and I think Richard got used to this very quickly yeah and you you get into survival mode as well I suppose so I don't know like you just kind of deal with it like and and that's not the right phrase but he's yeah it's survival so he's like well I have to get through this and yeah it's so normalized and I think Richard um also put up with it as I said for the sake of the children because the thought of him leaving the family home and leaving his three children at the hands of a psychotic mother that was inconceivable to him so he didn't know what she was capable of if he wasn't there then would that violence be directed well, towards yeah, the three it. children He's also protecting them and yeah yeah Richard would later go on to explain that he thought Cherie's behaviour was a coping mechanism, saying that she had control over me but not over her own problems. So I think maybe there is some frustration that she's not able to get a handle on her alcoholism. 
and um and any other kind of issues that she's got so she's taking that frustration out on richard so she can't control her own life so i'll control yours as the years went by richard began to realize that his life was in danger his wife's behavior was out of control and things were only getting worse sheree's readiness for violence was a ticking time bomb how long would it be before she finally went all out and murdered him furthermore he wanted better for his children the trauma of witnessing such savage levels of violence in the home between their parents was beginning to affect them in noticeable ways. He had to get himself and the children to safety at any cost. As women are often perceived as being the more likely victim in cases of domestic abuse, Richard later admitted that he felt that if he didn't have compelling evidence that he was being abused, he wouldn't be believed. It was this belief, coupled with a desperate need to escape his living hell at home, that prompted him to begin discreetly recording Cherie's behaviour. Oh, good for him. I mean, it's awful that he felt like this is what he needed to do, but I'm so glad he did. Absolutely, this was the clincher in this case. And he kept a detailed abuse journal with dates and times of each incident, and he also set up covert cameras in various locations around the home where the abuse usually occurred, and he activated a voice recording app on his phone which captured audio of Cherie's abuse. And this was a brave but precariously risky undertaking for him, because of course had Cherie discovered what Richard was up to, there was no telling how she would react. I think she would have probably killed him, genuinely I think she would have killed him. But seeing no other choice, Richard felt it was his only chance, so he did it anyway. And over the course of several months, he managed to capture dozens of pieces of damning evidence that documented the full extent of the abuse he was suffering at the hands of Cherie. Each file would then be stored in his email account for safekeeping before being deleted from his devices to ensure they couldn't be found by Cherie. So I think he set up like a... Um, a, a separate email account oh that, that was hidden from Cherie well and everything him. was kind He's of stored so on the cloud clever. there really clever absolutely oh. I think he was only able to really probably do that because he'd suffered this for so long that it had become so normal to him that he he had so much resilience at this point that he he could kind of day by day live this life of being abused by her and still have the mental agility to mm. think clearly and have clarity and think right I need to record some of this if I'm actually gonna ever bring it to an end. The video and audio footage captured a number of assaults which included Cherie spitting at Richard, punching him, grabbing his hair, ragging him around, slapping him, kicking and biting him as well as get this threatening to take his head off rip his heart out and break his teeth what kind of woman oh. threatens to take their husband's head off oh my god mercifully for richard his gamble paid off and Cherie's reign of violence and terror over him ended in early summer in 2021 and that was after more than 20 years of hell the police first became aware of the ongoing situation between richard and Cherie when a 101 call was received from a child safeguarding officer at the local authority it is a bit sketchy as to how the child safeguarding officer came to be involved with the family, but ultimately this involvement resulted in the recordings Richard made being handed over to the police. The footage clearly showed several incidences of severe domestic abuse being perpetrated by Cherie against Richard, oftentimes in full view of the terrified children, which just breaks my heart. The police began an immediate investigation which presented Richard with a golden opportunity to end the family's suffering once and for all. 
With Richard's cooperation, Cherie Spencer was eventually arrested on suspicion of domestic assault and battery. Under questioning, even when confronted with the damning footage of her obvious crimes against her husband, Cherie made no significant statements as to the allegations of assault upon arrest and strongly denied any wrongdoing. Cherie was released on bail on the condition that she leave the family home and have no contact with Richard or the children. After she was arrested, the problems continued during family court hearings with her claiming that she was the victim of domestic abuse. Oh my God, I so love unsurprisingly, that she's still trying to absolutely. go along with that side of things. And it's on fucking video and voice recordings. And he's got a journal of everything you ever did to him. And yet you're trying to say that you're the victim. Ugh. And I wonder if the more damning evidence was actually the recordings where you would hear what Cherie was saying because it's one thing saying, well, I've reacted in this way and I've I've hit him. It was self-defense or retaliation or I was wound up. But with some of the really cruel things that she's saying, it's kind of hard to explain that away. The trial of Cherie Spencer took place in March 2023, so just last month, and lasted for five days. She stood accused of domestic assault, battery and actual bodily harm. Richard bravely took the stand and told the stunned jury members the harrowing story of how he'd endured two decades worth of appalling abuse. He said, I became increasingly hardened to the physical attacks that were usually inflicted when Cherie had been drinking alcohol, such as the kicking and punching, although some things were particularly painful, such as the biting and nipping. I'm physically bigger and stronger than Cherie, so I could restrain her if the pain became unbearable. However, I could only hold her for so long, and when the time came to let go, she would be even angrier, and the injuries she would inflict afterwards were always worse. As he fought back tears, he added, The abuse was hidden from the outside world, including friends and family. Cherie manipulated me into believing that I was a responsible and willing participant in the abuse. She remorselessly proclaimed that I deserved to be punished, and that it was a justifiable consequence of me disappointing her in some way. He went on, little by little I lost my independence and willpower and just accepted that this was how my life was going to be. I complied with Cherie's demands and she controlled most aspects of my everyday life, including things like activities I could participate in and when, which room I could sleep in and even which toilet I could use. Gradually I became isolated from friends and family and was left deep in debt causing me to feel trapped. I mean dictating which toilet he can use it's like she's treating him like a dog yeah even though she's the one acting like a rabid dog yeah the jury were then shown all the evidence that richard had gathered to support his wife's prosecution dozens upon dozens of videos audio recordings photographs and journal entries were exhibited and it took close to two hours to cover everything off In total, Richard Spencer had handed over 43 photographs of injuries, 36 covert video clips and nine mobile phone audio recordings. After the lengthy viewing session, the judge called Cherie's treatment of Richard the worst case of coercive and controlling behaviour I have ever seen. And that was in a 22-year history. So just shocking stuff. A neighbour of the couple also spoke out in court, describing how she regularly heard abusive language being used by Cherie towards Richard, including, You're not a fucking man, I want you out of my life. 
The evidence against Cherie was so overwhelming that even her own defence barrister was at a complete loss and admitted aloud to the court that there was very little, if anything, he could say to mitigate against Cherie's appalling treatment of Richard. He described her professional accomplishments as particularly ironic, adding that it was impossible to recognise Cherie at work as the same person who subjected her husband to such shocking and distressing attacks. Mm. And is I know we kind of laboured it already, but I just I, I always struggle with that that how people can present themselves, and I think it just shows, and we see it so much on the show, but it just shows you never truly know yeah, someone you know unless you're living on. with them, yeah. really. So Cherie's barrister's only defence argument on her behalf was to point out that she had been a long-time sufferer of depression and anxiety throughout her whole life and had tried to self-medicate with excessive alcohol use. And the court also heard that she had an excellent work record with her job with the Ministry of Justice. Cherie Spencer admitted to all of the charges of abuse and coercive and controlling behaviour, which related to the period January 2016 to June 21. And she also admitted to three offences of assaulting her husband and causing actual bodily harm between January and April 2020. However, she showed zero remorse and even grinned callously when the judge addressed her directly, saying, You have caused him significant psychological harm. This is the worst case of coercive behaviour I have ever seen. In one of those recordings, it is clear you defecated on the floor. Your husband can be heard scrubbing while you were heard to say to him, I made you do that. All I asked for was for you to go to the shop. I watched as you spat in his face time and again and called him bitch, tiny cock and skank and insulted members of his family. You whispered in his face in the most sinister way and shouted, get the fucking chicken on, get to the fucking shop and warning him, you'll learn. By your actions, you intended to humiliate or degrade Richard, and you have caused him significant psychological harm. Richard Spencer was a vulnerable victim, isolated from his family and trapped financially. There is a history of violence and abuse against the same victim. It cannot be overstated how shocking the charges are. And I cannot understand how she can grin whilst he's addre- the judge is addressing her directly and describing these things that... Like, it's it's bad enough for us talking about this and you've described the things she's done and it's made me shocked and I know our listeners will be listening thinking this is horrendous. But to say it to that person that you did this and they're literally stood there smiling and showing no remorse and they know they did it. Like, we've all done stuff where we felt bad afterwards or we've all woken up after a night out and gone, oh God, was I behaving like a bit of a twat? Like we've all had that that horrible feeling, yeah. I'm sure, where you think to yourself, oh God, have I behaved like a twat? And yet she actually has behaved like an evil, evil person. And she's just not, uh, like someone's talking to her, telling her what she's done. Yeah. What the, and like it's, how and the without, hell can she just sort of stand there grinning? And I, I've been in a courtroom and it's the most serious surroundings you will probably ever be in in your entire life if you go into court so it's formal and serious and this is a judge speaking to her and she knows she's going to get sent down and and yeah she still behaves in this way it's if you're behaving like that in such an intimidating environment then you really are probably a psychopath aren't you which I think she possibly was um and I think it was possibly her last 
the last chance she was going to get to kind of exert any power over Richard in sort of belittling the situation and kind of saying, I don't take this seriously. I don't take the abuse of you seriously. I don't care what this guy or this judge, this woman is saying to me. I don't care. I I laugh Mm. in the face of this and I laugh Mm -hmm. in the face of you. The arrogant grin was soon wiped away from Cherie's face, though. Due to a previous conviction for a fray, which I don't know too much about, coupled with the sheer magnitude of the abuse she'd subjected Richard to over their 20-year relationship, the judge, of course, handed down a custodial sentence, and it was four years that she was sentenced to, as well as an indefinite restraining order which bans her from ever going near Richard Spencer again. And she could be heard, and this is, of course, of course this is a way, she could be heard loudly sobbing as she was taken oh, away to begin a jail sentence. I bet because, there were no yeah, actual tears. Fine. I bet it was just the noise well, and the show. I, I I think there were tears then, tears for herself, of course, because the the oh, reality yeah. of, of the consequences had really hit her, whether she agreed with this, you know, that she should be punished or not, whether she accepted it, doesn't really matter. She was just like, fuck, I'm going to prison. I've lost. I've lost now. I'm powerless. And I think she was absolutely crying for herself. In March 2023, Richard bravely appeared on ITV's Good Morning Britain to speak about his wife's tirade of abuse, addressing the stigma that can often surround men being physically abused by women. He admitted that it was hard for anyone to disclose the treatment that he went through during Cherie's 20-year campaign of abuse. I didn't watch the actual um, segment, but I saw clips of this on Facebook and it was just, he just is so incredible to be able to do that. Yeah, and he did he did an interview with the Daily Mail as well, where he talked in depth about the abuse that he suffered. He was so brave because the only reason that we're able to name him is because he waived his right to anonymity, which he would have had the right to be protected, wouldn't he, in, in this mm. case? So um, he waived that right and, and came forward. And I think him speaking out publicly will have done some real good because it, mm-hmm. it sort of says, yeah. actually, this does happen. And I came forward and I put an end to it. And hopefully that's inspiring to other victims of domestic abuse. Speaking to hosts Richard Maidley and Susanna Reid, Richard said that during the trial he just wanted it to be over with and there were so many endless delays. He explained that the abuse was a complex situation that started off minor with pushing and slapping before developing into more violent behaviour. Images of Richard's injuries at Cherie's hands were shown on the programme, showing the true extent of her physical abuse. He was left with black eyes, bruises all over his body, and, as I said earlier, a cauliflower ear from when she disfigured him with that wine bottle. And in one heartbreaking admission, Richard told of a time when Cherie was attacking him with such excessive ferocity that he was knocked to the floor in full view of his terrified children, which it's just, it really is heartbreaking to think oh, of that scene. You just can't even imagine, For them to see you? their dad, no, for them to see their dad at the hands of their mom fall into the floor as a result of her abuse against him. And I think children would also just be terrified of that because they would also Mm -hmm. be thinking, am I next as well? So they would have absolutely been living in fear. So in in this um, situation that Richard described, he said Cherie stood over him, screamed insults at him, whilst raining down a flurry of punches and kicks. And he instinctively went into the fetal position, which he said he did to protect his face so that he could still take the children to school and people wouldn't see that he'd been the victim of domestic abuse. Richard would later praise the resilience and mental fortitude shown by all three of his children throughout the long and harrowing ordeal. 
The stigma of male domestic violence is a complex issue that can have far-reaching consequences for both victims and perpetrators. Historically, domestic violence was often seen as a private matter, and the notion of a man being a victim of domestic violence was largely unheard of or just dismissed. However, this attitude has been gradually changing over the years, and there is now a greater recognition of the fact that men can also be victims of domestic violence. Despite this, male victims of domestic violence often face a significant stigma. Society's traditional views of masculinity as being strong and in control can make it difficult for men to admit that they have been the victim of domestic violence. They may fear being seen as weak, emasculated or not man enough, which can result in them suffering in silence and not seeking help. Additionally, the stigma surrounding male domestic violence can make it difficult for men to access the resources and support that they need. And many domestic violence shelters, and this is a point you touched on, Bethan, before, Mm -hmm. many domestic violence shelters and services are geared towards women, which is great because they are generally the victim of domestic abuse in two thirds of instances. But that can make it difficult for male victims to find help that is tailored to their needs Mm -hmm. because you would not put a man into a women's refuge would you even if that man is a victim of domestic abuse you can't really do that because that in itself could trigger the female victims and survivors of domestic abuse in that refuge and it's not obviously that's not the man's fault but it's that's just the way it is yeah there are less refuges there are less refuges and less places which means you could as a woman you know, flee and potentially in, in most places on foot in a, within a town or a city, you could flee on foot and get somewhere. Whereas for a yeah. man, you may have to travel out of that town or city. You may have to somehow make a journey. It's not going to be as easy to find. Um, so it's, yeah, there's a lot that, that they are. And there's a lot that, that certain charities, the charities I talked about a lot in my episode are really trying to, support men more because there isn't there isn't a a tangible thing that they can look for or go to whereas you I think most of us would know the 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 charity women's refuge we'd know women's aid like that's kind of one of those names that everyone knows so yeah it's it's really tricky isn't it for the the balance because obviously there are more women and they need to be more women's focused shelters and help but there are male victims who also need help and support. Yeah, and we we absolutely don't have any agenda. It's just a coincidence that we've covered two cases in the last few months that happened to involve uh, male victims of domestic abuse. So there is no agenda. It's just, I just thought this was a particularly interesting case to bring to the podcast. But it it is an interesting discussion to have. I I quite often will focus on like a certain topic because it gets into your mind, doesn't it? And then you kind of, you can't really think about anything else for a while as well. But there was a, I can't even remember the name of the refuge. So it's very unhelpful of me. But recently, completely unrelated to this, I saw a post on Facebook where this refuge in South Wales, it's a women's refuge and they had taken in their first man. Basically, what they'd said was, we felt the need to help this person. We knew that he needed support and that he had fled an abusive relationship. But equally, we know that there are women who live here who it would not be helpful for having a man around, blah, blah, blah. So as a collective group, the women who had been helped by this charity and who were there, who had fled, and the women who ran the charity, and I'm sure there's men who work as well, but they wouldn't be 
visible, would they? They wouldn't be at the, at the refuge, no. of course. But they, as a collective, made the decision to support this young guy and have him come so that he could have somewhere that he could sleep, wash and get himself ready to then move on because he'd fled and he had nowhere to go. And I thought, how wonderful, because it would be very easy, I think, for the the leaders of the um, of the refuge to kind of go, nope, no man. But actually they went to these women and they said, look, this is the scenario. Do you feel that you would be comfortable with him having a room in this refuge for a short time? And they all agreed and said that they would welcome him. So some things can happen. And there are, there are, I also think of, um, females in relationships, in gay relationships. Um, that must be really challenging as well that they That's so potentially have been the victim of domestic abuse at the hands of a woman. Yeah. They then find themselves in a refuge surrounded by women and that could be a real trigger for them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just so many facets to this and it is a fascinating subject to delve into. And it, I, I personally think for me, witnessing that incident that I witnessed probably 20 years ago of those two guys, you know, that one guy slap his partner in the face really hard in front of everyone. Maybe me sort of bringing this to the fore is a way of processing what I saw because that never left me. And that was clearly an abusive relationship and I did nothing about it. So um oh it's it's awful though because you don't know what to do i went to school with somebody and her dad was abusive towards her he was physically violent and she'd confided in me and i did not know what to do i was 12 or 13 i had no idea what i should or shouldn't do and obviously if it was right now i would go to the police i would go and i would say I can't make this disclosure on her behalf. However, is there any way that you can do a welfare check based off a different made-up excuse or something? I would be pushing for something, but I did not know what to do. She'd said to me, don't tell anybody. She ended up in hospital, and I remember going to my mum in floods of tears saying her dad did this, and she told me, and I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. She told me it was a secret, She told, and I Mm. thought I was doing the right thing. And my mum was kind of like... You couldn't have done anything differently because you're a child and that's a lot to put on you. But even that sort of thing, like I now I look back and I know full well that my mum was right. Potentially, I could have said something to my mum and my mum could have done something, definitely. And that that could have changed things. But equally, I was only a child. I couldn't have done anything differently. Same with you. If you'd stepped in Mm. in that scenario, something really bad could have happened to you. You could have been the victim of someone then hurting you in some way. And it possibly wouldn't have even helped their scenario it might have made their situation worse no, it, because it when they get home then have. that yeah. guy's gonna say well look that guy got involved now you've made me hurt him and you've you deserve being punished i don't know there's there's so much more to it so i think yeah if we can at least use our kind of platform like we talked about before with some of the signs to look out for if if your friend potentially you're worried about your friend and things that you can look out for that they maybe being more and more isolated and you're worried about them in a relationship. There's, there is more we can do nowadays, isn't there? There is. And I know we talked very, we'll bring the episode to a close in a moment, but I talked very early, uh, a little while earlier about a neighbour of Richard and Cherise who had overheard some of the exchanges between Cherie directed towards Richard of, you know, I want you out of the house, you're a waste of space, you're not a fucking man or whatever she said. It could be, I don't know, but it could be, for example, that that neighbour had actually reported that to social services because she'd have been aware that there were three children in the yeah, household. Yeah, maybe. And that might have been why children's been services how, got involved. Yeah, yeah. So again, anything like that, 
you absolutely can report things anonymously and action will be taken. So, so yeah, it's, it's an incredibly sad subject to, to visit, but it's great that Richard was able to bring an end to this, but it took 20 long years. Overall, male domestic violence can have serious consequences for both male victims and society as a whole. It is important to recognise that domestic violence can affect anyone, regardless of gender, and to work towards creating a society that is more supportive of all victims of domestic violence. And yeah, there are, I think it will continue to gather pace and momentum. And I think we will start to see more support networks and resources, particularly for men and other um, margins of society. So um, I really hope that that does happen. Mm. So thank you for listening. Please get in touch in all the usual ways to let us know what you thought about this episode. And if you are able to, as I said earlier, if you're able to support us on Patreon, there is loads of stuff over there for you to listen to and devour. Just head to patreon.com slash seeingrebpodcast. And we will see you next week for another episode. See you then, guys. Take care.